Business is the strongest type of institution. In many ways, government is failing. CEOs all over the country are taking a stand now on social issues. It's become less taboo. The test of a great company isn't whether or not everyone agrees. It's how we treat one another when we disagree. Hello, I'm April Eccles with World 50. Welcome to part two of Untethered World, leading in a time of chaos. As you're well aware, nearly three years ago, a global pandemic descended upon the world. COVID-19 completely upended life as we knew it. It was the rarest of black swan events, a once in a generation global shock, except that it wasn't. Alongside the pandemic, war erupted, employees quit in mass, supply chains were disrupted, the list continues. In order to understand these trends and uncover best practices, we surveyed our members in March 2022. We received responses from 209 senior-level executives representing an average revenue of $24.3 billion, and then supplemented our results with in-depth interviews from another 28 leaders. In part one, we explored how executives are facing the new call of leadership and bringing employees to the forefront of some of their biggest decisions. In part two, we will be digging into the increasing responsibility of responding to and pivoting around major world event after major world event. This is Untethered World, leading in a time of chaos. Hubert Jolie, former chairman and CEO of Best Buy, has this to say. The world in which leaders operate has changed fundamentally in the last, certainly in the last two years, maybe the last five years, where we seem to be going from one crisis to the next. And they're all unprecedented in nature, at least for this generation. And it's also a broadening. We used to be in charge of managing the four walls of our businesses and being measured on shareholder value creation. Now we're being asked to weigh in on a whole range of societal, environmental, geopolitical matters. I wouldn't say, by the way, that these are not business issues. They're actually become business uh, issues, and it's part of the job now. Wanda Austin, former CEO of the aerospace company, compares the way executives have had to lead over the past three years to whack-a-mole. Leading in an untethered world meant that success depended upon how quickly you could react. What I see is a tendency toward whack-a-mole, which is that popped up. Let me let me bang on that. And this pop, okay, now I'm gonna run over here. And that's what makes it feel untethered because it feels like you're chasing, you know, the next bright light that pops into your view. Change is always gonna be there. Disruption is always gonna be there. And sometimes that is what opens the door for innovation for people to think about things in a new way, or to embrace new solutions. You know, as long as things are the same, it's very hard to drop what you're doing and go do something else or to try a different approach because what you're doing seems to be working. And there's risk in moving from something that looks like it's working to something that might not. The fact of the matter is, I think a sign of great leadership is someone doesn't chase the thing that's just popped up, but says, How are we embracing the challenges that we face and preparing ourselves to make sure that we're on a course 
that whatever pops up, we will respond to it in accordance with our values, in accordance with our business plan and directives, and to make sure those business plans open the door for being open to change, whatever that change may be. Rajesh Thacker, VP for Global Sourcing and Logistics at GE Gas Power, notes that this pressure to have a react-first approach is not only unsustainable, but also may not be strategic. Speed is good, but only if it's aligned with strategy. Behavioral piece is really important, right? So people who are, again, willing to change, but have a systematic thinking, okay? Not just responding to the mail that day. Like, it's a, for me, you know, you, you just can't be reactive every single minute of the day. It just gets tired and it is tiring and it's not healthy for anybody. So while we do need to respond to the crisis, and we always do, by the way, but it's more about staying focused, staying to the to the strategy, being able to take a step back and think through, you know, what we need to do. And I just feel like that behavioral piece is an important piece. Thacker goes on to describe how he and his team learned to pivot and break down issues into digestible pieces. The sooner one realizes the reality, the sooner you can focus on the things you control versus things you don't control. The more we think about this thing and be prepared with the different scenarios and be willing to pivot because you know you're not going to get right 100%. So when COVID happened, just like an example, I didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. At least I thought it was a local China thing. And then, but, but the day... This, like the day I knew that my team cannot come back to their hometown, we started thinking about, we buy so much stuff from the region. How are we going to figure this thing out? So instead of thinking about every supply, every part, we started thinking about customer. And we said, okay, let's work customer back. How many customers get impacted by what part from this region? And we would actually look at all around the world and we'll say, okay, We'll take care of everything which is due for next three months. Let's take care of the customer first. We will prioritize that customer first and then next three months and next three months. So, so you look at this very ambiguous situation, but you try to come up with a process which is logical, customer-centric, and the team gets energized by that because they are not going everywhere and anywhere trying to fight the fire. They know what you're trying to accomplish. They know why you're trying to accomplish that. They know what good looks like as a milestone, right? So when you give them that path, Easier said than done. It was not linear, by the way. We learned these things along the way. But not a single project site shut down, not a single customer shut down, not a single factory shut down. That's an outcome as an example. you got to take the most complex thing and you got to break it down in pieces and think about what you control and how does your team has a clarity on what needs to happen. And then you pivot if you need to. When COVID-19 wreaked havoc in March 2020, and companies scrambled to adapt, medical technology company Medtronic had just updated its approach to crisis management. The company, the largest employer in Puerto Rico other than Walmart, had suffered massive damage to its facilities due to Hurricane Maria. The disaster pushed the Medtronic team to build out a robust crisis response function that has been able to act on the multitude of challenges facing business today. Anita Took, Vice President of Enterprise Risk and Facilities explains. We had a crisis team, but the crisis team was was a little more of a, you know, a list on an Excel sheet of cell phone numbers. And, and now we have a much more deliberate process on when we activate and who we activate. 
We have a set crisis team that stretches across the organization with sub teams in each geography. And so when, when an event happens, we pull together that crisis team to help manage the event. If possible, the local team actually mobilizes and take the lead. And then the, the corporate crisis team engages with the local team with a basically how we can help. This is how the template of a, of a crisis works. We give them training in advance. So right now, one example is, is we've activated our crisis team around China and Shanghai. For Olivia Cartley, director at Papa John's and U.S. Bancorp, she suggests learning from your peers and reframing the idea of preparing for a crisis to anticipating a crisis. Anytime you have a crisis, you really kind of go through three phases. Of, you know, you try to plan for it, right? You prep for it. And then you have to activate your plan. And then you, when you get through, you should do a postmortem and say, what did we do well and what didn't we do well? A lot of people talk about preparing for a crisis. But I think the word has changed to anticipate. I think it's a different sense of urgency now. I mean, one of the practices we've adopted is looking around and seeing what other companies are dealing with. And even though you're not dealing with that at the moment, it really does help inform and helps you anticipate if this is happening at this other organization that's similar to ours, it peers, you know, what's going on there? What are they dealing with? And could we possibly have anything like that that we might have to deal with? And are are we anticipating that in the right way? Or are there things that we need to change in order to mitigate the risk of ever having it to begin with? Antoinette Gavin, president and CEO of Terramo BCT, recommends going through an artificial crisis with your team in order to prepare for a real one. I think it's time to dust off some of those old playbooks that we used to think of as crisis and say, in today's world with instant communication, what do we do? Again, who leads and who follows in my team? We thought things would be calm and then the next COVID variant showed up, right? So get ready and decide where you lead and where you're going to follow. Crises don't build character, they reveal character. So go through some artificial crises and say, what character are we revealing and how do we shore it up now so that when the next thing comes, I don't have to remind people we're about patients first or people first. They know it. Cartley echoes this sentiment. Identifying the right people for your team is critical in a crisis environment. Do we have the right people around the board table? Do we have the right leadership for the board? Do we have the right people in key management positions? You know, before, if you had every company has situations where they may have a weak link and they're trying to work with it, right? And then a crisis occurs, and that's when it gets highlighted. And I think the sense of urgency that if you have any known weaknesses in either your people or your processes or your culture, then those need to be addressed in calm times because they will become really highlighted uh, in a time of crisis. As someone who serves on several boards, including Amgen, Virgin Galactic, and Chevron, Austin shares a serious new challenge that boards are facing with current CEOs. It has opened the door for boards, non-gov committees, to be thinking more broadly about you need more than just previous CEOs. 
Previous CEOs have not experienced what current CEOs are living with, but there are other smart people who can be helpful in that discussion to say, gee, I understand why you're worried about this, but it seems to me that you haven't considered these other possibilities or new areas of concern, cyber risk being one of those, security threats. The solution now is if I don't like a decision you make, or even if it's just a draft decision, I'll threaten your family and show up at your doorstep. I mean, this is a whole new set of challenges that, well, I don't think it's been reported, you know, so much for corporate CEOs. I think it's always been there, but suddenly it's more probable than it was before because you see it happening in different circles where the answer is, I'll just show up at your front door. So the board has got to say, what are you doing to protect your executive? What counseling are you providing not only to them, but to their families? How do you go home and tell your family, "Uh, if you see a strange guy out in the front yard, you know, go run and take cover. As the speed of events or the even faster speed of public backlash has accelerated, companies have had to move from an ad hoc approach to a much more formalized one about what to say and when to say it. In our survey, 95% of respondents agree that they are under increased pressure to lead on social and political issues, with 100% of CMO respondents and 96% of CEOs agreeing. When it comes time to speak out, Jolie reminds leaders to be careful. Of course we have to be careful, right? We're not elected officials. I checked. I don't sit on the Supreme Court. I'm not the president of any country in the world. And we cannot weigh in and should not weigh in on every issue that arises every day because they're not necessarily relevant and we're not necessarily competent on these matters. And so the the key thing is you need clarity of framework and process and having good resources to deal with this. And it starts with, you know, is the issue relevant to our purpose and our values and our stakeholders. D.G. McPherson, CEO and chairman of Granger, became CEO around the same time as Donald Trump came into presidency in the United States. This helped provide an immediate introduction of how, when, and if he speaks out. Now he sees these inflection points as times to reinforce a company's values. Right away, there was uh, we, we were trying to figure out what what I say, what I don't say, what I respond to, what I don't respond to. And I think for for us, where I've gotten to is being willing to speak out on how events or world issues impact our team members and go against the principles that we have for how we expect to interact with each other is a useful thing. We try to use those things as as a way to reinforce what we care about. I would say, if you think about things that are sort of political or legal, it's it's much more complicated. I would say we, we don't take political sides. We don't have a PAC. We're not, you know, we are very clear that we are agnostic on the political spectrum, actually. We urge our people to be involved, but uh, it's, it's just more difficult. We don't have time to weigh into the legislation and what it means. We, we, we aren't going to be experts on legal legal things. So I think, I think, you know, we're trying to constantly remind our team members what we stand for. And there's, if an event infringes on that, attacks that, we will comment, is what I would say. Speaking out isn't limited to external communications. Chief Communications Officer Hanno Cabrera offers how they address emotionally charged issues at General Mills. 
we're very careful in um, deciding when we're going to speak out. Some of it comes down to, do we feel that we have the right to play, the right to, to speak and address this issue? There's speaking out, which I think the brain defaults to. You're issuing a statement externally. And then there's speaking to your employees. And again, on that basis of respecting that they are coming into, the, into work with emotions on any given issue, I think simply communicating and acknowledging, I understand that this is an emotionally charged moment. One of the things that we've communicated when emotionally charged moments have, have come before us, the election is an example, that no matter where you might be on an issue, the, the test of a great company isn't whether or not everyone agrees. It's how we treat one another when we disagree. We try to level set with our employees that it is important for us to acknowledge the issue but also acknowledge how are we going to treat ourselves knowing that we have differences. I also think that there are some issues where confusion sets in because it's breaking news and people aren't sure what to think. Some are calling for a company to take a stand. In other instances, the best thing that we can do is simply provide information. Like here is information, for example, on our reproductive health services. Here's how you can get more information. Jackie Yaney, former CMO at Tableau, believes in not being afraid to ask for help. She recommends partnering with others, both inside your company and outside of it. It's okay we don't have the answers as a CEO or whatever C-level, but your people do want to hear from you. On this notion of like afraid, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I mean, luckily I did have an equality partner you know, at the company that could help me or, you know, an internal communications. I always check with somebody. (laughs) So, you know, I don't, I don't just uh, write and send or even have talking points and have a discussion without some help. I ended up hiring a political science professor at Stanford. And that seemed to be a really smart thing to do. And what he helped me do was set up a program. And then we started bringing in other experts. And we started having these inclusive roundtables. And then I also created a equality champions group with people around the world so we could have these conversations. And I had to kind of internalize that didn't mean I had to have all the answers, but the important thing was to have open dialogue and to have a drumbeat of it. Because I think the worst thing is like, you know, you boom, you have some sort of thing or there's training and then kind of nothing. So that's gone really well. I also hired a resilience professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And again, didn't have her come in once. I had her meet with the team about six times so that there there was a continuation of how can we all be more resilient in this ever-changing world. Most decisions are murkier than they are portrayed in the media. For external communications, It's important to educate the public on the realities of operating in politically charged environments. Curtly provides an example from the restaurant industry. The Ukraine situation is unique in that you had regulatory requirements, right? And so certain things you had to do. And then you had the the court of public opinion about things you should do. And then you had your contracts where you might or might not be able to do something, even if if the court of public opinion thought 
that you should. And I'll just use the restaurant industry in general as an example. If you're a franchise model and you don't actually own the restaurants in Russia, Ukraine, but a franchisee does, then you are limited in what you can do because it's it's not your contractually, it's not your business. Now you can, you know, if you use the Papa John's example, we we ceased providing support to the the Fran- the Russian operations. But the franchisee chose to continue to to operate the business. So you do what you can do. Of course you have to make that that decision also what you can do. But that's something, you know, that's a very significant decision. It affects lives and businesses and livelihoods and employment and all sorts of things, even though it's not your operation. We did it through press releases, through media interviews, etc. Because, uh, you know, people who aren't familiar with that business structure, we weren't the only ones communicating it. Other franchise operations were doing the same. You know, that is a significant decision. And of course, as you know, it had to come quickly. Um, Every minute today is like a week, you know, 10 years ago, because the news cycle never stops. Gavin echoes the imperative of providing context, especially for essential services. We basically make the equipment that collects and separates blood and cells. So if you've ever had a transfusion or during COVID, if you heard about convalescent plasma, that's the kind of stuff we do. If you know someone who's had a stem cell transplant or if they have sickle cell disease, they are probably on a therapy where they are going once a week to get their blood filtered for that sickle cell, right? So these are this is not a discretionary thing. So when Russia invades the Ukraine and the borders close, we have an obligation to still provide humanitarian aid, right? And our employees are saying, why are you still shipping product to Russia? Because there's still babies who are dying there, right? They're, people are people. You have to set context and you have to put the why behind it. Even if you provide all the necessary context, No decision will please every employee or customer. Gavin urges leaders to just start the conversation. We don't drive our businesses based on likes, but there's this pressure for CEOs and other senior leaders to have high likes. And I always use the, (laughs) I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere, right? I always use the example of the teacher in middle school who you just hated but inspired you to do great things or the English teacher you didn't like, but then that's why you became a writer, right? The people you liked along the way weren't necessarily the best people for you. So you have to always play that balance and say, would I be proud to say I did this and made this choice when I'm talking to my friends and family? You know, would I be willing to not just say, I'm glad I did it, but defend why I did it and help people understand it's everything's a trade-off. Everything's a trade-off. And what I find is the most important thing in all of these, both externally and internally, how do you use the platform you have to get the conversation going? Because there is no A or B. We want everything to be black and white, but this is all about embracing shades of gray 
the more you talk through it, people realize what they have in common. Have businesses overreached or are they doing the right thing for their stakeholders? There's no clear consensus. According to Hillary Rapkin, chief legal officer at WEX, some executives believe it is their responsibility to advocate because they are filling a void left by governments and other institutions. When government isn't doing what government should be doing, that the business leaders then have to step in and fill that void. And I think that that is true. And I think it's probably true even if government were doing exactly what they should be doing. I think we are uniquely positioned as business leaders to have our voice heard and and hopefully respected by all our employees. And so I think it's important to take a stance. The problem with taking a stance is there's always at least two sides to most issues. I don't think it should be political, but I do think that they should take a stance on issues. Jolie also sees businesses paving the way and governments falling further behind. We're at a point, certainly in the U.S., where business is the strongest type of institution. In many ways, government is failing. Political leaders are speaking to their base, so they're taking one side. In a sense, we're the only ones who are looking at the whole spectrum of employees because we need to unify our teams in pursuit of our our purpose. And so if somebody is genuinely trying to remove the voting rights, the ability of some of our employees to vote, and we know in this country there's a long history of that, uh, you know, you just need to study history, then you need to have their back because nobody else will. It's not for me to decide for whom they should vote, but I want to make it easy for people to vote. So I feel I need to have the back of my employees and allow them to be, you know, the best version of of themselves. I also happen to believe, and I'm not alone in the business world, that having a strong democracy, strong, stable democracy and the rule of law is foundational to our version of capitalism. And so making sure that we have a robust democratic process is actually vital to our type of, uh, of capitalism. And so that's another reason. So, but the first The thing is, always ask yourself, why is it legitimate and appropriate for me to get involved? It's not about politics. It's about my purpose, my values, and the impact of a potential decision on my stakeholders. We hope that you have found this research useful and that some of the perspectives expressed here are helpful as you address these challenges. The full report is available and can be viewed at untethered-world.com. Please share your feedback with us or ask further questions by contacting info at untethered-world.com. Thank you for listening.